the banks like to see consistent history. They like to see financials that are up to industry standards. And you can't just do that overnight. Accounting is a repetition sport. It's a process. You can't turn it off and on when you choose to. You really have to have some consistency to it. And the more consistent your financials are, the more comfort a bank can get to say, give you that line, your first line of credit. That's a huge step for a business. It usually takes a while. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everyone. This is Danny, and you're listening to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Today on the show, we have the pleasure of chatting with John Cassian, the Director of Operations at Signature Analytics. So Signature Analytics, which I took from the website, is a local outsourced fractional CFO and accounting firm providing a custom approach to on-site accounting, financial, and business advisory services. And John is a certified public accountant who started his career in tax and auditing, but later moved into the career of outsourced CFO and accounting consulting, where he joined as accounting manager at Signature Analytics in 2016. However, John's passion for empowering the team leading a vision, making sure things run smoothly and efficiently, brought him into the current role of operations, where he is now truly killing it as a recipient of the 40 Under 40 Awards by the San Diego Business Journal. John, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I had the pleasure of chatting with you a few times. And maybe if you can just let the audience know what kind of brought you onto this career path. Sure. So throughout uh, my youth and going into college, I, I really idolized my dad and his passion for finance, accounting, and you know business advisory. He did pretty well going up through the accounting route and became an executive. My mother was also an accountant. So I guess I kind of had it in me in the bloodlines. So after college, you know, I did what most folks do. And I went into public accounting and really learned a lot about how businesses operate, the different types of compliance things. And then I got a good experience in a lot of different industries. So, you know, that path ultimately was the starting point for where I've ended up here at Signature Analytics. And, you know, over time, I realized that I didn't so much have a passion for for accounting per se, but I had a passion for helping small and medium-sized businesses. So that's where the fork in the road was. And I started going to this you know, operational role. And, you know, I really pride myself on being an operation uh, strategic advisor person first, but having a good understanding and knowledge base of the accounting and finance function. Oh, I didn't know that was actually um, in your family. Like that was actually in your blood too. Yes. uh, It was kind (laughs) of funny when I went to college, I actually applied into the hospitality management program to which my uh, father, he was always a funny guy. And he told me, you know, I don't know why you're doing that. You're just going to end up in accounting. And what do you know, a couple of years later, that's pretty much what I did and ended up getting a master's <laughs> in accounting and going that route. So he was he was right. <laughs> but he was like, I told you so. 
Yes, that's exactly it. He'll still, uh, you know, make fun of me for that one. But, you know, similar to people that go into similar trades to their parents, you have a certain level of comfort knowing that someone in your family was doing that thing. You know, you see it a lot with doctors, uh, people who have parents that are doctors, then become doctors, same with lawyers. So I think I just had a, you know, a comfort zone there. And maybe a little hubris thinking, hey, if my old man could do it, then why can't I? Totally. And you got a mentor right from the start there, too, when, um, you know, you enter your career and you're like, oh, well, I can talk to dad about this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he's definitely been an advisor to me and uh, someone that I've uh, looked up to, you know, over the course of my career. That's amazing. I wish I can say the same for my parents. <laughs> what kind of companies does his signature analytics serve? And why do they come to you guys? What are some of the pain points that you normally see? Sure. Signature Analytics primarily serves what we call the lower middle market. So typically those are companies in the 5 to 50 million revenue range. We definitely do clients that are pre-revenue, such as biotech, so biopharmas. Um, they're basically, you know, they just have a lot of funding and they're trying to get a product to market. So those would be on the zero revenue side. But typically, we're working with companies that are already at market, and they're really trying to take their business to the next level. Oftentimes, we see small business owners that started a business because they were fantastic at something. Maybe they were a computer engineer and developed a software. Or, you know, maybe they just started a business due to a need, such as a landscaping company or something of that sort, maybe pest control. And what really happens is these people are very smart and they, they become successful fairly quickly, but they didn't get into the business to do accounting and finance. So usually that's not their strong suit. So what Signature Analytics likes to do and what we pride ourselves in doing is allowing these business owners to do what they're good at and then leave the accounting and finance to us because that's where our expertise is. So the more we can enable them to play to their strong suits, such as selling or creating or whatever that may be, ultimately their time is better spent. They don't need to be going into QuickBooks and posting journal entries when you know accounting is not really that thing and their time is valuable. So we like to help get the business owner elevated to the next level and help them achieve their goals, which is you know usually growth, maybe growth then exit, uh, or maybe it's expanding, you know, just having multiple locations and creating a longstanding family business. We see a lot of different goals, but ultimately we just want them to be able to spend more time on what they're good at. And typically that isn't accounting and finance. Yeah, even for me, when I first uh, joined Procurify and I started talking to a lot of accounting and finance leaders, I was like, oh, you're speaking a different language from me. Can you explain that in a you know non-accounting way? So I totally can understand about a lot of the thoughts and worries that a new business owner might face. Yeah, absolutely. And we want to make accounting and finance understandable. So we do a lot of mentorship for our clients and you know we help uh, bridge that gap, that knowledge gap that they may not have. And, you know, these are smart, sophisticated people, but everyone can't be good at everything. So it's, uh, you know, it's really important as a small business owner to get good advisors, find people that you trust and leave those types of things up to them. Very typically, you know, we don't have a business owners writing their own legal briefs or perhaps filing a lawsuit on a customer that's not paying. You know, you go and you get your counsel involved. So you need to have the same type of mentality when it comes to your accounting and finance function. You know, you can't just wing it because then, you know, you might not be bankable or let's say you need another investor 
but you don't have actual financials or perhaps they're, you know, modified cash basis and extremely inconsistent. So it's really important to leave these types of finance and accounting technical matters up to people who are experts and can guide you through it. Absolutely. And I think um, that's super important because there's so many challenges that a startup kind of faces as they scale, like you you mentioned, taking it to the next level. So in terms of controls and challenges, what are some of the biggest things that you've seen as a company grows? Yes. Some of the biggest things I see is just resistance to change. A lot of folks, they're in their comfort zone and they want to grow and they want the company to advance, but they're still kind of stuck in their ways. So you know, in a sense, sometimes we have to rip the Band-Aid off and say, hey, you know, we need to reprocess this if we want to make it to the next level, if we want to become more efficient. And change can be painful. Some people, you know, are all for it and others, they drag their feet a bit and it's a little more difficult to get them to where they need to be. So that's a big part of it. The other thing is relinquishing some control. Small business owners, they're so used to doing things themselves And, you know, that's why they got themselves so far. But as you know, in order to make a business more scalable and more profitable, you really have to detach the ownership from the success of the company to a degree. So you need a decentralized command. You need to start putting trust into other managers, putting trust into your people and to grow your company that way. The owner can become a tremendous bottleneck if that doesn't happen. And that's going to ultimately stall a lot of progress. So those are some of the big things that we see. So again, you know, we like to empower the owner, give them the tools to feel that they're still in control of the business while relinquishing some of that control to mid-level managers or other members of the C-suite. Again, to make a more scalable approach, it's really important to deputize some of the important things to others. And ultimately, if they don't, it's going to be really difficult to exit the company at a certain point. You know, your multiples are going to continue to go down if the investment bank views the owner absolutely essential to the success of the company. So depending on what your long-term goals are, that could dictate how fast or how long you want to leave the owner playing this critical role in the company. I think I really loved it when you said it's all about decentralizing that sort of control. I think that really speaks well to the title of the podcast, which is Spend Culture Stories. So I think in terms of the trust and people, that's kind of like the culture part of you know company spending or company finance processes. But then when it comes to kind of spending, um, I feel like there's kind of this balance that you kind of need to face, which is having the processes in place, but also having the trust. So how do you think business owners can really build a healthy spend culture and also implement the control so that you can make sure that the decisions are made the right way? Sure. That's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that we see a lot of success in um, is through incentivizing these mid-level managers. And how do you do that? Well, you have to create a customized system that makes sense for their role. They can only control the things that are in their purview. So having a one-size-fits-all comp model might not make sense. You might create some resentment there. So typically what we like to do is for anyone who is a significant part of the company or we're trying to make a significant part of the company, we really want to analyze their role and what they can control. And then we want to create a departmental budget around that. So then on a monthly or quarterly basis, we can really track their progress and their profitability 
in a customized way that, again, they have some ownership of. If you don't have ownership or the ability to make changes to something, then, you know, having this budget doesn't really matter because you can't affect it. That's a real key component of doing so is, again, creating that customized personal budget and then incentivizing their compensation around measures that they can affect. I think that's a really good methodology, which kind of enforces the responsibility part of that, where you are now bought into this idea of this is my budget. um, This is how I want to spend based on my role and what's good for the company. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't do this from an ivory tower. This is going to take hours and a lot of meetings with your finance and accounting advisors. And then with this manager, they should be the one that gives the most input about how they think it should go. That's how you get the buy-in. You can't just give this to someone and say, hey, these are the new rules, go play by them. That's ultimately, again, it's going to cause resentment. Odds are they might not hit their goals. And you know, ultimately, you might lose that employee. So a good way to get buy-in is to have them be part of the process and agree to the process. That's a critical part of this. So I'm actually curious, when you mean starting this process and providing these guidelines, who is normally the person that does this? Because this might be a rudimentary question, but it is confusing for a lot of small business owners where it's what kind of finance leader should you bring in to kind of enforce these controls? Would it be a controller, CFO, or even someone like a senior accountant who would be the person doing this? Yes. So in order to create the program, the best folks to collaborate with are likely your controller and your VP or finance, or if you have a CFO. So I think that you need someone on the accounting side because they're going to tell you whether this proofs out or not, or what the actuals have been, you know, to date and whether, you know, this is actually feasible. Whereas the finance can, they can create the goals, the benchmarks that this person wants to hit, and they can add an element of creativity into the comp model. So I think you have a combination of accounting and finance here. Where the owner comes into play or the ultimate operations person, they're really important because they need to tell you what their goals are. In order, you need to understand what the goals of the organization are and then tie in the motivation and incentivization of this employee into those goals. Because again, if you have this comp plan that's trying to drive certain behavior, you want to make sure that if this behavior is successful, you know, what does success look like? What are we actually trying to do? Are we trying to drive more sales? Are we trying to reduce client churn? What are our goals? Are we trying to reduce spend? You have to understand those things. So I think it's truly a collaborative effort where the goals are you know, put in place by the operator. The finance team finds a way to make this creative, to incentivize the worker. And the accounting team really validates whether you know, this is actually possible or not based on you know, prior historical data and future projections. I think you explained that in a really easy to understand manner. So thank you for that. Now, normally, I think When people think of accounting and finance, they tend to put them in the same bucket. But even though they kind of play together very closely, there are still some real differences. And I think you explained it very clearly. Yes. An accountant is the scorekeeper. You know, they're the ones um, on the scoreboard, whereas the finance team, you know, they're putting together the the team's schedule and what's going to happen next. So it's a tough thing to balance. And, you know, you really need a unique resource to be strong at both. So typically, my recommendation is that you want two different people, one to be in charge of accounting and then another to be in charge of finance. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I love sports analogies because I feel like everyone watches some sort of sports. So now it's easy for you to kind of see this happen in a company. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, you know, working with a lot of controllers and finance people, one thing I've realized is that a lot of folks can do both, but not at the same time. So that's another thing. Since we work in a fractional environment, if I put two controllers on a job, I could have one of them run the finance operation and one of them run the accounting operation because they both have the skill sets to do so. But having the same person do both is really difficult. Absolutely. And when do you think is a good time for uh, small medium businesses to start incorporating this kind of strategic finance leader? When do you think it's too late or too early? Great question. Typically, we run into the most clients that are doing it perhaps a little later than they hoped. And that's just because they're busy, they're trying to get their product to market, they're rapidly expanding, and they just didn't really have time or have the ability to take the time um, in order to make this decision. So usually we see it a little late. I think the right time to get someone like this involved is when you decide, hey, we need to be bankable in about, let's say, six months to a year. I think you need at least that six months to a year lead time to be bankable. And that's a big component of it. The banks like to see consistent history. They like to see financials that are up to industry standards. And you can't just do that overnight. Accounting is a repetition sport. It's a process. You can't turn it off and on when you choose to. You really have to have some consistency to it. And the more consistent your financials are, the more comfort a bank can get to say, give you that line, your first line of credit. That's a huge step for a business. It usually takes a while. So I think that when you want to become bankable, you need to say, hey, you know, in a year, I want to be able to get a line of credit. Well, I need to get my finance and accounting in order now. That's a critical juncture. And then again, if you're trying to get additional investment, another important point, you need the same same type of attitude. You need consistent financials. You need a plan. You really need a finance person if you're trying to get an investment because a lot of that depends on you know the perspectives, the forecasting, what's going to happen in the future. So again, you need to be at least a year out on your thinking. So that would be my best advice. I know you work with a lot of earlier stage uh, biotech companies where they have a lot of money being spent, either indirect costs or you know direct costs when it comes to contractors or I guess like headcount and maybe even supplies. So when it comes to kind of this kind of spend management and purchasing, what are some bad practices that you've seen that are no longer scalable as they grow? Bad practices. Yes, I've seen a lot of them. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think most of it, if you're an early stage startup, you're basically a giant checkbook. So, you know, you did a you know, a series A and closed $20 million and you hope that that lasts you 12 months or something of the sort. Um, so then you have, you know, a large sum of money in your bank account. Um, you know, you have a goal, let's say we need, we need to get this product to trials by, you know, X amount of time. And how are we going to get there? So usually what will happen is there'll be rampant hiring and then there'll be a lot of contractors involved as you talked about. So some of the bad practices I see is that there's not a weekly cash flow and there's not a monthly or annual cash forecast. Those things are super critical. Companies need to know their burn rate when, again, you're a giant checkbook and you're not bringing in any cash. Your burn rate is critical. Understanding what the overall spend for a specific part of the project is critical. So these are difficult and time-consuming finance activities that need to be had. You know, you would think that in order to get the funding, these things would be in place, but that's not necessarily always the case. So I think one, having a cash flow forecast weekly where each week you're updating 
what our bank balance is. You're reconciling the prior week outflows, and then you're projecting the current week accounts payable and the next 13 weeks, usually we recommend a 13 week. I think that's super important. That way you're looking at your cash burn. You understand, okay, are we going to make it 12 months? Are we only going to make it 11? Do we need to start our next round of funding sooner? All of those types of things. It has to be a weekly activity. The next biggest challenge I see is organization. Again, in the biotech example, there's a lot of materials that need to be purchased. So what usually happens is there'll be a couple of corporate credit cards and folks are just spending, they're swiping constantly, buying things, buying component parts, sometimes expensive, sometimes overseas transactions. So there needs to be a purchase order system in place. Otherwise, there's a tremendous risk of embezzlement or even just negligence in terms of ordering something twice when you only needed it once. Those types of things are rampant in biotech startups. So our typical recommendations are, one, again, we need to have a a chain of command. So we like to limit the amount of purchasers. I think that that's an important part of it. The next part is you want to have a PO process. So whether that's a purchase ordering solution, you know, like a Procurify, you need something of the sort to get you from purchase order to invoice to payment. That way, all of those things are tracked. Again, you'll have a lesser chance of fraud or just ordering duplicates. That will go down significantly if you have a succinct purchase ordering process. The next practice that we would recommend that um, we've seen as of late is working with your credit card company to tokenize your vendors. So essentially, tokenizing your vendors allows you to set up with your credit card a token for any of your preferred or common vendors. That way, if your purchase order person is buying things that they shouldn't be buying, the transaction isn't going to go through. So that's another way to, again, control your spend. In these early stage startups, cash is king. So you can't afford any waste, fraud, embezzlement, whatever it is. You just can't do it because you're not collecting. You won't be able to recover as easily from these loose practices as a a company that's productized. Some really good tidbits there. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the purchase order system just because One thing that we've seen as a, I guess, purchase order system provider is some companies, they don't really use POs because they don't really understand the benefit of having a PO. So how would you kind of describe the situation to these earlier stage companies where they might not even be using POs? Sure. POs are important. One, from an internal control standpoint. um, So we make sure that we're not buying duplicate goods. It's also good from an organizational standpoint. One of the things, again, when we're dealing with, let's just say, a company that's ordering a lot of supplies, they're moving very quickly. So what can happen is you can be ordering goods, then you're also receiving goods. When you have the PO, you know, okay, we've ordered 500 of this particular item. And then when you receive only 400, you know that you still have 100 open on the PO. If you're not using a PO process, when you're receiving, you kind of don't really know necessarily how much you should be receiving. Should it theoretically be on the invoice for purchase? Sure. But you just eliminated one of the internal controls part of the receiving process by not having this PO. So you could be short shipped something, but You don't really know because you don't have this piece of paper that tells you, oh, we were supposed to get X amount of these. So it's really critical when you're dealing with hardware, inventory, any type of thing that has to do with tracking components. I'd say, you know, it's always best practice 
to have a PO and then have your shipping and your receiving report. And then, you know, once those goods ultimately get there, you want to relieve those from your PO and say, hey, we've received these items. So it's a critical internal control process. I think what you'll see when you don't have POs is that no one really knows their amount of goods. No one knows if they've received everything or there's still items outstanding. So there's just a lot of ambiguity to that. And that can really result in then of just duplication of purchases. And then you'll have the wrong amount of things. You'll overbuy, you'll underbuy anything in between. So that's one of the big benefits of having a PO. And one of the other things is that, you know, then at least there's a process before the purchase actually happens. Um, So you're not just swiping the credit card for the invoice. You know, it goes through, let's say, an approval workflow. So I submit a purchase order, then it's reviewed by my manager. And then, you know, the purchase order is submitted to the vendor. You can also add in an approval step in the workflow which if you have a lot of lower level employees that need to make purchases, that's something that you'll definitely need. I think you explained that so well. And I hope um, a lot of our uh, Silicon Valley based listeners are listening to this because we've definitely talked to a lot of people in companies where they might have like an office manager just using the corporate card or Amazon to be buying these things. And then someone in the company says, oh, but I need that thing too. And then they realize they've ordered four of them. So it definitely hits home, I think, for a lot of the our listeners in the show. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just as a general practice in accounting, workflows are key. Approval workflows are just so important. Although we work in closely knit companies, mistakes can be had, embezzlement can happen. The more you can just have approval workflows and electronic approval workflows that are quick and easy, uh, but, you know, give you that peace of mind that, you know, cash isn't going out the door when it shouldn't be. It's a really important part about you know managing small businesses. So we are big proponents of that and we try to incorporate multi-step workflows into anywhere that there's significant risk. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned auditing a little bit early on in our conversation and it's super intimidating for a lot of companies when they're going through their first audit because they might not know what they need for it to be ready, or they might not know how to work with an auditor. So how can you say that companies can be better audit ready? And how can they prepare better for that? Sure. Great question. A lot of the audit is sampling different types of documents, could be payables, could be receivables. And then what they're going to do is they're going to trace that from the accounting system to the support. So in the support being the invoice or the bill or whatever have you. So a real big part about being audit ready is just being organized and having consistent practices in your back office. So that could be every time you get a bill in the mail, you scan it to PDF and you put it in a folder or, and then you collect all the ones that are sent to you electronically and you have them all in one place. You make a new folder for each month, those types of things. Or if you have an accounting system that allows you to attach it, You always attach it to the entry. So then the support's right there. It's just being organized. That is super important. The next part is reconciling every month end. Don't do quarterly. Don't do annually. Every month end. Accounting is a repetition sport, as I said before. And that's the only way to get consistency of data is to reconcile monthly. So one of the other things the auditors are going to look at is they're going to say, okay, let me see your trial balance. You send them your trial balance. Well, for each balance sheet account, you should have a reconciliation that ties out. So one of the ways to prepare for an audit, well, reconcile your balance sheet monthly. That means each account, you know, whether it's cash, accounts receivable, accounts payable, your loan, whatever it is, should tie out monthly. 
to a schedule. And the best thing to validate the schedule is additional support. So if you have a monthly loan doc, well, that monthly loan doc should tie out to your trial balance. So these types of things, it's a lot of just organization and consistency. So if you're going through a first year audit, you know, my first thing would be, you know, where's your data? Make sure you know where all your files are. So when they request documents, you can locate them and then make sure your balance sheets reconciled. Most folks, they just reconcile cash and everything else is what it is. And then maybe they'll true it up at year end. You know, that's not a good practice. You have to reconcile monthly if you want consistency of your data. So that's an important part of it. One of the other things you can do is more on the the profit and loss, the income statement side, and that's to perform flux analysis. Flux analysis is a very important part of evaluating your business. And basically what that means is you want to run a monthly profit and loss statement and then compare the months and get an understanding on why something went up in one month and not in another. That's a general practice of auditors. They're going to say, well, why'd your legal bills go up, you know, 300% in this month and then back down? It's, oh, you know, we had litigation. You know, there you go. You have an answer. You have the support. You're good to go. You move on. But if you don't have those types of answers, then you don't have, the auditors aren't going to have comfort. It's going to end up spending more time, doing more inquiry, um, and they're going to continue to dig deeper, which is ultimately costly and it's time consuming. It will be a very painful audit. So those are my recommendations. Stay organized and reconcile monthly. Thank you so much for that, John. And how do you think technology can kind of play within this role? Because I think um, the part where a lot of people get stuck is the documentation part and finding those details. I think um, without technology, it's super hard to kind of go through that. So what would you recommend on that sense? Yeah, I completely agree. So one good thing, again, would be you know, hopefully you have an ERP that allows you to attach items. So, you know, a lot of folks are on QuickBooks Online. It's not the most robust system, but it could do a pretty good job, especially for small and medium-sized businesses. So one feature that we discussed is making sure you attach the support to each item. So whether that's accounts payable or accounts receivable, attach that invoice. Just doing that alone, then you know, hey, all my invoices are attached. That's great. So then when the auditors come around, they can pull their own support because they have access to it. Or if you have one of your teams pulling their selections, it's pretty easy for them to go in there and find the items that they need to pick. So that's an important part of it. Let's say, again, it's a startup biotech and they're doing an audit. Well, they're really going to want to see your purchase order to payment process. One, they're going to validate your internal controls. So that's an important part. But two, they're going to want to see that that three-way match actually exists. So if you have a PO system and you have an approval workflow, then you're going to have a lot easier time getting through that process. If you have an internal control deficiency in a startup company, you know, maybe it will be okay, but maybe it will make it more difficult to get that next round of funding because the potential investors, they're not completely confident of your practices. You know, maybe they think, well, maybe money's leaking out the door or they're spending on things that they don't need because how are we supposed to know? There's no purchase order process. So I think using technology to uh, gain, I guess, to one, uh, ease of access for data, and then two, 
to just allow people to gain comfort that things are being done as they should up to industry standards, best practices, and that we're following internal controls. You know, it doesn't have to be Fortune 500 internal controls, but we have a two-step approval process for all purchase orders over $10,000. You know, that alone makes people feel a lot better that their cash is being uh, managed appropriately. Definitely. I think that's something that a lot of people kind of take for granted if they already have a system like that in place. For a lot of companies, it might seem like a no-brainer, but I feel like for a lot of new companies, you're so engrossed, um, as you mentioned, in the actual work where that's not something that you really bat your eye about until it's a little bit too late <laughs> where people start asking you know, questions and you can't really answer them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, it comes back to the folks that start companies. They don't start companies because they love accounting and finance. They have a mission. They have a product that they're trying to develop. They want to save lives. It's things like that. So, you know, it's completely understandable why sometimes the accounting and finance function might get delayed a little bit. But what I found in my experience is the second time entrepreneurs They're a lot quicker to get accounting and finance involved than the first time. People do learn. They realize, wow, you know, my first time around, that was really painful. I'm not going to go through that again. I want to be bankable sooner. I want to have an audit that I don't get a ton of uh, internal control deficiencies and it doesn't take six months. So I find that once people go through it once, they do it a lot better the second time. But for first-time entrepreneurs, I think that there's a lot of uh, lessons that can be learned from others and you know, make it easier on yourself and get an accounting and finance team involved earlier. I think it will ultimately save you money in the long run, whether that's audit fees or, you know, it, or it might just help you become bankable quicker so then you can scale your company. So I think that it's a really important thing to at least take a good hard look at incorporating an additional accounting or finance advisor. Absolutely. And, you know, if you guys are looking for one, Signature Analytics is something that you probably want to look into. Um, They do a really, really good job with a lot of the file techs and a lot of other industries, too. We've actually had the pleasure of meeting them in San Diego. So that was really fun. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. (laughs) Even if we're not in the market, we're always resources to give you ideas or help or say, hey, maybe you only do need a bookkeeper right now. So, you know, even for folks that aren't clients or prospective clients, we're a big player in the market in San Diego. We're growing in Los Angeles and Orange County, but we're always available just for questions or, you know, inquiry or a diagnostic or something like that. Always here to help. That's awesome to hear, John. And I'll drop the contact information for Signature Analytics website in the description box below. So if you guys wanted to have any follow-up questions for John or the Signature Analytics team, uh, feel free to do so. I guess this leads to our last question of the day, John. This was fun, but uh, I don't want to keep you here for too long. Great. Yes, this has been a lot of fun. Already looking forward to the next one. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now it's going to be serious. Um, So the last question we asked this to all the guests, um, I think it's just something fun to kind of tie it all together. What's one thing that people are surprised to learn about you? That is a good question. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, I'm out in Southern California, but I grew up in Boston. So, you know, I've been out here for about five years. So people are surprised to hear that. I think my accents dwindled a little bit, but (laughs) if the Red Sox or Patriots are on, it seems to come out. And then when I tell people that formally in hospitality management, that really confuses them because, you know, they're like, how do you, you have a CPA license? And I was like, yeah, I, I guess I didn't really know what I was doing in college, but I eventually figured it out. That's definitely a different component 
And then lastly, since I'm behind the, the microphone here, I have red hair. So that's not very common. And the people on the airwaves won't know that. So I'm a redhead. <laughs> I'll put a picture of you there so everyone can see. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, there's not a lot of us. So, you know. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us again, John, on the show. And um, I think I've personally learned so much from you, and I hope the audience got a lot of resources from this call, too. It's my pleasure, truly. And, uh, you know, look forward to chatting again. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.